This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. As you can see, it is our big Turkey Day special. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, always has been. I mean, it's a holiday about prayer, giving thanks, and eating. It has all my favorite things. And so, of course, this is my favorite holiday. For those of you that have been watching the program for a number of years, you know that one of the things that we do every year for Thanksgiving is that we read a Thanksgiving Day proclamation from presidents past. So far, we've done Coolidge, Reagan, and then the original one by George Washington, and also the one that kind of reinstated the whole thing with President Lincoln. And if you've been watching the program for a long time, and you know that, and you have seen those specials, you know that part of the history of this holiday is, is kind of interesting. Because originally, it was George Washington that instituted it, but it was not an annual thing. And so they had a Thanksgiving Day proclamation then. I think Washington issued another one, and then President John Adams issued one later on, but it wasn't an annual thing. It just occasionally came up. And then Jefferson refused to do them, and the tradition kind of died with him. And then you get all the way to President Lincoln, and it is in the midst of the Civil War that we have Thanksgiving reinstituted, and, and Governor, or sorry, President Lincoln actually makes it to where that is an annual thing, and, and we've just sort of carried on that tradition ever since. And it's one of my favorite holidays. I just I love the history of it. It has a, a long, interesting history dating all the way back, of course, to the Pilgrims, which is the reason that Lincoln said it when he did in November. Uh, the first time with Washington, it was just kind of a coincidence and wasn't really connected to the Thanksgiving meal there with the, the Pilgrims and the Indians. And so you have that going all the way back, and because of that, there's a lot of early presidents that don't have Thanksgiving Day proclamations at all. You, you don't have, uh, I mean, even the lesser known ones like Martin Van Buren, people probably wouldn't know anyway. But when you talk about Thomas Jefferson never issued one. And so that's a really big deal. John Quincy Adams never issued one, to my knowledge, or at least not one that I could find. And so I thought about who would be the, the best president to do one with, and, and there's a lot of them that are really good, and what I love about it is the further back in history you go, the more like sermons they become, and the more they emphasize the original intention of Thanksgiving, because a lot of people don't realize this, the actual name of this holiday originally was not Thanksgiving. It was a national day of prayer and Thanksgiving. Now, obviously, it's a little long, and so I'm sure at some point somebody who's a genius in marketing was thinking, yeah, we really need to shorten this thing. <laughs> That's how Thanksgiving came about, at least in the name. And people didn't want to say every day, hey, I hope you have a happy National Day of Prayer and Thanksgiving. And so it got shortened to Thanksgiving, which is understandable. I don't think that anybody did that with malicious intent. But I do think the unfortunate side effect of that is people kind of secularized it and forgot that this was supposed to be a day of prayer. You know, the tradition that started with the pilgrims, before there was like an official day, they did kind of make it an annual tradition. And do you know what year three was? The pilgrims fasted. Think about that. The holiday that is most associated with eating, and I mean, I get it, it's America. Every holiday is associated with a lot of eating. That's just who we are. But the day that is most associated with eating more than any other one, Thanksgiving, on year number three of Thanksgiving, the traditional harvest feast that the 
pilgrims kind of set up amongst themselves, they decided that they were going to do fasting because to them, prayer was the integral part, not the eating. And so there were a couple of years that they had a, a super bountiful harvest and they had a giant meal and invited the Indians over for dinner because they had so much. And then a few years later, they just decide, well, you know, let, let's fast on this one. We really need to fast and, and devote ourselves to prayer and piety and all of those things. And, and it wasn't like a thing that they were doing a reverse course. It wasn't that they thought they did anything bad in the previous years. It's just they recognized that prayer was the central part of that. And so the meal can come and go. That's, that's really more of a, a side dressing, pun intended, kind of thing going on here. But the prayer was what needed to stay, and I think that that's one thing that unfortunately we've kind of lost as Americans. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't intend to fast. Uh, I, I do fast occasionally, but, you know, I don't make a big deal about it because of what Christ says in the Gospels there. But when it comes to Thanksgiving, I intend to kind of pig out a little bit, and that's fine. But I think it's important for all of us to remember that prayer and thanksgiving is the origin of this holiday, and it's the thing that needs to be emphasized the most. The meal is great. But ultimately, the meal, watching football, being with family, all that stuff, that all should be, at least in our own mind, secondary to prayer and thanksgiving. And the further back you go in history, the further back that you look at the different presidents when they issued Thanksgiving Day proclamations, the more they recognize that, the more they emphasize that portion of the day. And so what we're going to look at today, this is a really special treat. We're going to look at Warren G. Harding, a very little known president, because of course he only served about two and a half years in office before he passed away and then had to pass the mantle down to Calvin Coolidge, his vice president, who had to step up and become president and then of course did win re-election. So we're going to look at one from a, a little known president, but he has a really interesting proclamation, and I think you'll see why I picked this one. This is taking place in 1921, remember, right on the hills of getting out of World War I, and we can go ahead and look at that now. This is the beginning of the Thanksgiving Day proclamation by President Warren G. Harding, and it says, that season has come when all alike in pursuance of a devout people's time-honored custom and in grateful recognition of favoring national fortunes, it is proper that the president should summon the nation to a day of devotion, of thanksgiving, of blessing bestowed, and of prayer for guidance in modes of life that may deserve continuance forever. Uh, hold on a second. I'm, uh, I apologize for this. I'm getting some kind of weird... Oh, yeah, I just figured out what that was. I'm sorry about that. I'm going to have to uh, make an adjustment here. There we go. Okay, sorry about that. So anyway, with this particular uh, passage in the Thanksgiving Day Proclamation, what President Harding is really trying to emphasize is that blessings demand thanks. Because when you look at that, he's saying that basically we have been very blessed. And because we've been blessed, it is proper for a president to call forth a day of devotion. This is a biblical principle, and what I think is really interesting about this is 
Warren G. Harding was not a particularly religious or, or known as a devout Christian. He wasn't like a heathen or anything, but he was seen as a little bit crass and not necessarily, you know, your, your stereotypical what somebody is, as an evangelical voter would look for, not somebody that attended worship every Sunday, that kind of thing. But it's interesting that despite all of this, he does recognize several important biblical principles, one of which is, we have been greatly blessed as a nation. And because we have been greatly blessed, that demands that we go forward and give thanks to God as a result of that, that when you are blessed, you are then obligated to give thanks to the one who has blessed you. And then he kind of reverses that, which I mean is accurate when he says it in the, the latter part here, where he says uh, in the modes of life that it may deserve a continuance of divine favor. And so he says that, first of all, we are being called to give thanks. And in response to that demand, blessing demanding thanks, like we just talked about, and then the end result of that is a continuance of blessing. This is a biblical principle as well. Because there are often times in the scripture, both Old and New Testament, where people refuse to give thanks and the blessing did not continue. There were a lot of times where God bailed Israel out of something and Israel just didn't have any gratitude for him. There were times when God was with them and, and they just didn't recognize it. Think about this. What was the very first thing that the children of Israel did when they got out of Egypt? God does all these amazing wonders and blessings and brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. First thing they do, start worshiping an idol. And they start saying, these are the gods, talking about the golden calf. They are the ones that have delivered us from Egypt. Now, that's several different kinds of sins, pride, idolatry, some of the other things that were going on there. But ultimately, what that sprung from was a lack of gratitude. Because they didn't have the gratitude that they needed to God for blessing them by giving them their liberty and fighting for them and, and taking them out of that place. Because they lacked that gratitude, they wound up having to wander around in the desert for 40 years and, and they had a great deal of punishment. Their blessing was stopped because they refused to be grateful for what God had given to them. And that's something that President Harding understands is that even though he's not a super religious person, he does understand this very simple principle that if God blesses us and we refuse to acknowledge that, we refuse to give devotion to him, we refuse to thank him for the things that he has done, then those blessings get cut off. God may continue him for a little while, but ultimately he is going to discontinue the blessings, not because he's so small or that he needs thanksgiving, but that he recognizes that continuing to give, just like a child, if you continue to give a child and you do not teach them gratitude, then that's going to cause all kinds of other problems, just like it did for the children of Israel. And President Harding actually acknowledged that and understood it. So let's go ahead and look at the next, uh, next little passage here in this. Uh, oh, sorry, I don't know why it's... Uh... There we go. All right. So President Harding says, Foremost among our blessings is the return of peace, the approach to normal ways again. The year has brought us again into relations of amnity, with all nations, after a long period of struggle and turbulence. In thankfulness, therefore, we may well unite the hope that providence will vouchsafe approval 
to the things that we have done, the aims which have guided us, and the aspirations which have inspired us. Now, this is really interesting because what he's alluding to there is something that I, I kind of talked about at the top of this, which is the Harding administration is following World War II almost directly. We had just gotten out of World War, or not World War II, sorry, World War I. We had just gotten out of World War I, and this was the Great War. Remember, unlike World War II, the world had never seen anything like World War I. It was completely unprecedented on a number of different ways. And interestingly enough, this is also when Spanish influenza hit. Remember, that was really big in uh, 1919 and 1920. And so there's been all these turbulent things, and, and we kind of understand a little bit better now how a pandemic can really turn a country upside down. And we were fighting a war then, which is something that I also find hilarious, that we're like, you can't go to the movie theater or you can't go to a restaurant because of the pandemic. Uh, we continue to fight a war during the last pandemic. So it, it's kind of funny how soft we have gotten and how spoiled we have been when it comes to not going through these pandemics periodically. But the last one with Spanish influenza and we were fighting World War I, that was an incredibly turbulent time. And because of that, President Harding and Vice President Coolidge, who eventually became president, they decided we are going to run on a normalcy ticket. The thing that we are going to present to the voters, the thing that we are going to inform them about what we're going to do is we're going to try to get back to normal. We're going to try to get government out of their way, out of their business. We're going to empower you to return to your normal life. And they did that. They did it by cutting government spending. They did it by cut, cutting government regulation. And I'm not going to get into all of the politics. because That's not really supposed to be the focus of where we are. But the point is, they understood that normalcy is a good thing. They understood that people... Not because it lulls them into complacency or anything, even though there is a spiritual danger of that as well, but they understood that pulling them out of the chaos is a positive message that people understand because ultimately Americans, we, you know, we don't want to hurt anybody. We just want to live our lives. We just want to raise our kids and uh, see our families and celebrate things like Thanksgiving. That's really all we want. We're not... They try to paint us as, you know, evil, rabid racist and warmongers and all that stuff. That's not who Americans are. We're not conquerors. We just kind of want to be left alone, to be perfectly honest. That's sort of the American mythos, and, and that's something that is the core of our ethic. And because of that, the Harding administration ran on a ticket of normalcy and won in overwhelming fashion. People rejected progressivism. They rejected the turbulence that came with trying to undergo all these big, massive changes, and they went back to the Harding administration that was saying, let's just leave everybody alone. Let's get the government out of things. And that is really what they were trying to hit at. But the, the even more important and the spiritual truth that is underlying all of that in this post-World War I, post-pandemic world where Harding is trying to get everybody to return to normalcy, I think the bigger spiritual truth that he just alluded to is that the best blessings are spiritual ones. Because you'll notice in that that we just read, what he's talking about there is he, he talks about all this, the physical blessings that we've been given, that we have all this wealth, that we have peace, which is a huge blessing that people really appreciated at this point in history. 
But then he gets to the bottom part and says, but ultimately, it's God's blessings on us in a spiritual sense that are more important. Remember, Harding's not a super spiritual guy. But he understands that the spiritual blessings of salvation and uh, you know being able to live in peace with other men, that those are ultimately the things that are even more important. And he says that all of the purposes that God has sent us for, those are the blessings. So in other words, living out your plan, or sorry, God's plan for your life, that's the real blessing here. Being able to have people out of your way so that you can live the way that God commands you to, that's the real blessing of liberty. And Harding's right in all of that. Let's go ahead and read the next little part of this passage here. It says here in the, the proclamation, We shall be prospered as we shall deserve prosperity, seeking not alone for the material things, but those of the Spirit as well. This is what I was talking about where he gets into uh, it being part of the Spirit. Earnestly trying to help others, asking before all else for the privilege of service, as we render thanks anew to the exaltation which came to us, we may fittingly petition that moderation and wisdom shall be granted to rest upon all that are in authority. In the task they must discharge, their hands will be steadied, their purposes strengthened in the answer to our prayers. Ours has been a favored nation in the bounty which God has bestowed upon it, the great trial of humanity, though indeed we bore our part as well as we are able, we were able, left us comparatively little scarred. It is for us to recognize that we have been thus favored, and when we gather at our altars to offer up thanks, we will do well to pledge in humility and all sincerity our purpose to prove deserving. We have been raised up and preserved in national power and consequence as a part of our plan whose wisdom we can not question. Thus believing, we can do no less than hold our nation the willing instrument of the providence which has so wonderfully favored us. Opportunity for a very great service awaits us if we shall prove equal to it. Let our prayers be raised for direction in the right paths. Under God, our responsibility is great to make our own first to all men afterward to all mankind in God's own justice. Really the crux of that part of the speech is that Warren is acknowledging what he started with, which is America has been greatly blessed. And then he starts comparing America's great blessings to everything else. Remember, World War I devastated Europe. There were whole countries that were financially and from a resource standpoint just wrecked because of World War I. And he's saying, it cost us a lot of money, but compared to everybody else, we got out of this thing relatively unscarred, and he was right about that. But he said, even though I believe that that was God's providence, that he was looking out for us, that he blessed us and protected us, and all of that was true, he said, now we need to turn around and recognize that perhaps the reason that God spared us that kind of faith that other nations suffered is because we now have an obligation to use that blessing to help others. 
to help the nations that are in need, to be a friend to them and, and to be a stabilizing force in the world. And he was right about that. Whenever, whether we're talking about on the national level or talking about on the, the small level, Whenever we have a great deal of blessing, we do have a responsibility to use those blessings to help other people. Now, Warren was a really small government guy. I don't think that he was necessarily talking about, let's get involved in a government program and go forth and help the other nations that have been wrecked by this. That really wasn't something that he just naturally inclined himself to. It makes more sense if you understand that to be him saying as a nation, we've been very blessed and very prospered, and we want to make sure that there are low taxes and low regulation. We, we let the people keep as much of that as possible because that's part of freedom. But then now that you have that blessing, you have a responsibility to do your part to help out the rest of the world. We have a responsibility, like you said at the end, to our people first and then the rest of the world. This, again, is a biblical principle. You can look in the first chapter of Acts. And you can see that they had a responsibility first to Jerusalem and then to spread the gospel to the rest of the world. They took care of what was in their immediate vicinity, and then they started branching out to help other people. And the thing that it really reminds me of more than any other is a passage that comes out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 7 through 8, where Jesus says, and this is him speaking to his disciples, giving a command to them, And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. What's so profound about that verse is this is Jesus telling his disciples, I am imparting upon you powers that other men do not have. Bill Gates can't heal somebody that's lame. He can't cure blindness. I mean, maybe all his money will help research for that, but he certainly can't just place his hands on somebody and make blindness go away. That's not a thing that uh, your Bill Gates or your Jeff Bezos or insert name of rich guy here or insert name of powerful guy here, that's not something that the president can do. Jesus is giving them a power that no other human being on the planet has. And what's his message? What, how does he relay that to them? He says, you have received it freely. You have been given much. Freely give. That's the same sentiment that Harding is projecting here. He's saying, we've been greatly blessed. God has given us a lot. God has given us protection that the other countries just didn't have the advantage of. And because of that, it's important for us to look in the mirror and recognize God has given us all these great blessings. Now let's use them to do His will. And that's exactly why Thanksgiving is so important. I'm not just talking about the holiday, I'm talking about the concept. Because when you understand that your blessings come from somewhere else, when you understand that the things in this world are not just playtime, that they're not something that are here for your enjoyment, they're not just something to, so that you can squeeze as much pleasure and enjoyment out of this world as possible, when you understand this world is not your home, when you understand that all these things are just blessings that God has imparted you with so that you may use them to go out and help others seek and save the lost, well, then all of a sudden it makes a lot more sense to you. Then all of a sudden you sit back and go, I, I, this isn't just something for me to use. 
I have now an obligation because I am being grateful for my blessings because I understand that they did come from God to use them to do God's work. And that's really sort of the, the thrust of what President Harding was getting to here. Let's look at the next part of this. Now, therefore, I, Warren G. Harding, President of the United States of America, hereby designate Thursday, the 24th day of November, to be observed by the people as a day of thanksgiving, devotion, and prayer, urging that their hearthsides and their altars, they will, they will give thanks for all that has been rendered unto them, and will pray for continuance of the divine fortune which has been showered so generously upon this nation." Now, I love that expression, and I think that's probably the, the most creative and well-written line of the entirety of this speech, that people will, by their hearthsides and their altars, offer up prayers. Why the designation? Why not just say offer up prayers? After all, it is a day of prayer and thanksgiving. It's because President Harding understood that it's important to make that designation, that you pray wherever you are. Whether you're going to a church to pray in a formal fashion, you know, that's something that's especially important to certain religions like Anglicans and Catholics, or whether you're just at home praying with your family, there should always be a recognition of thanks for the blessings that God has given to us. See, that conveys what kind of day Thanksgiving is supposed to be. Whether you're actually going to church and offering praise and thanks in a very formal way, or you're just sitting around with your family enjoying a great Thanksgiving Day meal, that is something that should be centered around giving God thanks for the things that He has given us. Wherever you are, you can always be grateful. You know, you can't always do exactly everything that God commands you to do wherever you are. You can be thankful wherever you are. That's something that is universal. And I think Harding recognize that as well. So let's look at the last little part of this and finish up this Thanksgiving Day proclamation. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed, done in the city of Washington this 31st day of October in the year of our Lord, 1921, and of the independence of the United States of America, the 146th. So, ultimately, the important thing to take away from that Thanksgiving Day proclamation to me is that they were kind of coming out of a dark time and trying to get back to normal. And I don't know if we're necessarily coming out of a hard time or going into one. But then I thought about it and I thought, maybe that's how they felt. You know, as much as it was great to be done with the war and have the pandemic at least somewhat under control, Spanish influenza, I don't think that Harding or the American people really knew for a fact that the hard times were done. And I really only kind of looked at it through that lens because of my own hindsight, and I know that they did have a, a really prosperous decade ahead of them. But they didn't know that. I mean, do I think that we're going to have a, a super economically prosperous or blessed decade with 
Joe Biden at the helm? Not necessarily, but there are a lot of other factors at play. And God works in mysterious ways, and, and sometimes he works in ways that can cause benefits that we didn't see, regardless of how bad our leaders are. That has happened before. It's happened in the past to mankind, and it's happened specifically to America. Sometimes we had horrible leaders, and we still were very prosperous. We still had a lot of good to come. But whether or not we're going into a storm or a calm, ultimately we can always be grateful for our blessings. Ultimately, we can always look to something and say, God, thank you for doing this. Thank you for being there for us. Thank you for looking out for us. Thank you for blessing us. And that is why, whether you're somebody that has nearly unlimited money and power or somebody that has next to nothing, we can always, always, always find something to be grateful to God for. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get into some local news that I wanted to sort of dive into. And I know I've been gone for really a couple weeks now because I got sick and then couldn't talk. And obviously being able to talk is kind of an important part of this job. So I hate that I wasn't able to be with you more than I was, but I did want to go ahead and dive into some local news that we didn't get a chance to look over. One is a article by Kyle Whitmire, and like I've said before many, many times on this program, there are times where I think Kyle Whitmire writes something of a decent amount of value. Like, he's actually writing something that is is pretty good, and, and sometimes he comes out with some pieces that have been pretty beneficial. I don't think this is one of them, just to be perfectly frank. And I, I think he's got completely the wrong idea on this, and I think the headline will tell you what direction this is heading into. Alabama is open for COVID. That, that's how he castigates it right off of the bat. And it actually has to do with the, a recent segment that I did about Governor Ivey relaxing the coronavirus restrictions. And so he's reacting to that story. And Whitmire starts off here. I wish I could cheer for Kay Ivey. I want to be proud of our governor for doing the right thing, the hard thing, the smart thing. Since the pandemic came to Alabama, there have been moments when it was possible, usually when some other governor in some other state did something stupid, to make Ivy look good in comparison. I mean, the governor of South Dakota still thinks she's doing a good job even after the test positivity rates rose above 40%. Higher than 5% is bad. Compared to her, Ivy looks like Winston Churchill. There's a couple reasons why that's dumb. First of all, does anybody believe that Winston Churchill would be wearing a mask? Granted, I'm not like an expert on Winston Churchill, but I've read quite a bit on him, and he doesn't really strike me as the type to just comply and wear a mask whenever somebody wanted him to. I, I believe if Winston Churchill were here today, he'd basically be giving the middle finger to these shutdowns. I mean, he's a dead guy. I don't know that for sure. It's hard to take a historic figure and really measure exactly how they would react to current events, but... I'm just saying, based on what I know about his personality, I very much doubt that Winston Churchill would have been a go-along-with-the-mask kind of guy. So it's, it's kind of funny that he's calling to Winston Churchill as the standard-bearer here, uh, saying that Ge Governor Ivey is like him in that sense. And the second thing that is dumb about this, he's worried specifically about the test positivity rate. Not the case rates, not the death rates which is really the only statistic that matters in the grand scheme of things. 
The other stats do matter as well, but only in how they affect the death rate. But ultimately, where he's going with this is the test positivity rates are 40%. You you know what that means, right? That 40% of the people taking the test are positive. So that doesn't even necessarily indicate that more people are getting the virus. Now, South Dakota is seeing a spike, and they certainly are. But you see, that's not sexy enough. He, he tried to find the stat that made it look as bad as humanly possible and just ran with that one rather than using a more relevant stat. He's not using the stat that really matters, which is the death rate. And, and by the way, oddly enough, he could have. The, the, death, the amount of deaths per capita in South Dakota is, I think, 11 in the country, something like that. So, you know, not first, not anywhere close to New Jersey or New York, but pretty darn high. But no, he doesn't use that. He goes directly to the test positivity rate, which it could just mean that a whole bunch of people that are not sick are not getting tested. And considering South Dakota's very low population and how much people are spread out in that state, that would make a lot of sense. But all of that context and understanding is not something that enters into Whitmire something relevant to do. He just, you know, kind of wants to make his point and then walk away as though he's done something profound. Then he continues on. But today is not one of those days. As state leaders around the country are reluctantly tightening restrictions, hoping to get the coronavirus under control, Ivy has been moving in the other direction. Two weeks ago, the governor erased occupancy limits in stores and restaurants. She did this even as coronavirus cases were rising, and there was no reason, given those numbers, to think that it was time to let up. Yeah, here's the funny thing about that. We know from stats today, th these are stats that I just checked right before I came on the air, that New York, deep, deep blue, pro-shutdown New York, has tripled its rates since mid-October. So in the span of roughly a month, maybe a little bit more, New York has tripled the rate of daily cases. Which, by the way, so is the rest of the country. I'm not singling out New York because I think that New York is especially bad about this. I'm singling out New York because it is, by so many people on the left, seen as the golden standard of how people should be doing shutdowns, and Andrew Cuomo can do no wrong, and they're saying the same thing about California and Oregon. But the thing is, all of those places are seeing a spike, too. They're acting as though the spikes in coronavirus, those are things that are only affecting red states. And if you just do everything exactly right and you, you pay your offering to the safety gods, you will stay safe from the coronavirus, except there doesn't really seem to be any correlation between states that are shut down and states that are more or less open when you're looking at the amount of cases that they're seeing because the rate for Florida, which was actually re uh, was mocked by CNN today for tripling their rates of coronavirus in the past month, yeah, so is New York with Governor Cuomo, who is basically promoting endless shutdowns. And anywhere that there is an Orthodox Jew somewhere that is having a funeral for their loved one, he's got to be there to break it up. Like, that that's Governor Cuomo versus Governor DeSantis. And yet they've 
risen in rates of cases about the same amount, honestly. And so when Whitmire says things like this in his column, it kind of ignores the fact that this is something that is happening everywhere. He's saying, well, there's governors around the country that are actually uh, tightening restrictions to keep the virus under control. Yeah, but the ones that are getting the same results as the ones that don't. So why are you upset with Ivy for loosening the restrictions? And by the way, if you go back and watch the segment that I did on Governor Ivy about her loosening the restrictions, I thought she didn't go nearly far enough. We're the only state in the Southeast to, that I'm aware of that continues to have a mask mandate, even though the neighbors to our North, South, East, and West, they all dropped their mask mandates and are having the same rates and the same spikes as we are. And so the mandate isn't doing anything. And despite all of this, Kyle Whitmire is very, very upset at Governor Ivey for doing a thing that doesn't seem to have any connection with the rising cases or deaths or anything else for that matter. He's very, very upset at her for doing something, even though she's more strict than our neighbors in getting the same results. But somehow this is something to castigate Governor Ivey about, which, by the way, I've been extremely critical of Governor Ivey in all this, but for the opposite reason, because she's not loosening up the restrictions quickly enough. But another thing that this kind of ignores is that businesses have been, especially restaurants, more or less ignoring occupancies for a while now. I mean, it's not really something anybody's worried about, and I'm not just talking about local places here in the city that I'm going around to local businesses that might be a mom and pop place with only one location. I'm going into like national chains and there's just not any enforcement of the occupancy, which by the way, I'm fine with. Obviously, I thought it was ridiculous in the first place, but he's acting as though the second that the governor loosens restrictions, what's going to happen is you're going to see every Arby's and Burger King in the, in the state of Alabama just slam full to capacity 24 hours a day, and that's just not happening. And they were kind of ignoring those restrictions even before she loosened them up. I mean, for the past, what, two months, whenever I've gone out to eat, I haven't seen anybody that's adhering to any of the, the social distancing stuff. They may be doing some of the, uh, you know, making you not get your own drink or something like that. But as far as like the occupancy, I haven't seen anybody enforcing the occupancy. And so I think Whitmire's kind of kidding himself if he believes that people were actually enforcing this. And like I said, there's been no data whatsoever in the state of Alabama to suggest that anything that Governor Ivey has done has been really affecting the virus. Because as we've gone over for literally months on end, going over the data from the Alabama Department of Public Health, that when we instituted the shutdown, there was zero evidence that doing so stopped the spread of the virus. In fact, some of the rates for both hospitalizations and deaths were higher during the shutdown than they were both before and after the shutdown. And by the way, when it came to the mask mandates, there was, I think it took about six-ish weeks for us to have a lower rate of cases during the mask mandate than we did before, which is hilarious because the thing is, it only has a, a two-week incubancy, uh, incubation period. And so it's pretty clear that the mask mandate didn't stop the spread either. 
This is by Governor Ivey's own admission, saying just a couple weeks ago when they were asking why the mandate isn't driving down numbers, she says, well, because people aren't wearing the mask. Okay, well, then that clearly means the mask mandate ain't working. And so he continues to do this, but kind of ignores the fact that Governor Ivey is really kind of powerless here. The only thing that Governor Ivey could presumably do is try to actually enforce these things, which he already said is basically impossible by her own admission. And so I don't see what Whitmire on a practical level would want Governor Ivey to do at this point. And then he continues on. And this week, Ivey went a step further. The Business Council of Alabama launched its Keep Alabama Open campaign. And unlike most business speak, this one is clear with its intentions. The state's largest business lobbying group is rallying its members to oppose lockdowns or any national strategy to get the pandemic under control. Ivey fell in line saying she would not order businesses closed to fight the spread of the virus. And it goes on to quote Governor Ivey, but his characterization is accurate there, that Governor Ivey said that she would not be closing down businesses because of the coronavirus. But the funny thing about all this is, even the World Health Organization, the people that, now, I don't necessarily trust them because I think that they're a China shill, and there's been quite a bit of evidence to suggest that that is the case. Even some people on the left have said, okay, well, you know, I don't want to disregard everything the World Health Organization says. And by the way, I don't either. But they were clearly in the bag for China and doing their dirty work and trying to keep this whole thing hidden. Leave all that aside. Even the WHO, which there are several people on the left that are still saying we need to listen to everything they say and take it super seriously. They came out and said, yeah, shutdowns are not really an effective control mechanism. What they can do is that they can temporarily put a stay on the spread of the virus in order to, for example, produce things that you need like ventilators, uh, like, you know, tamping everything down to slow the, or what is it, um, flatten the curve. Yeah, that's, that's been how long it's been since we used that vernacular. We have to flatten the curve and make sure that everybody has the resources that they need. But that's pretty much it. It doesn't mean that less people are going to get the virus. It doesn't mean that less people are going to get sick. It doesn't even mean that less people are going to die, at least not as a uh, caused by the virus itself. Now, some people may not die if you find yourself in that situation, and we now have hospital resources to keep them alive. But as far as people that were going to die, as long as there is an abundance and a readiness of resources, shutdowns don't do anything to affect that. Because eventually, you have to come out of your basement. And when you do, the virus is going to spread. That's how a virus works. As advanced as we are in medical science, there's not a darn thing we can do to stop that. And the World Health Organization acknowledged that and said it's not a control mechanism. It's a stall tactic, and that's really all it can do. And yet, Governor Whitmer, with no evidence whatsoever that our hospitals are overwhelmed or that we are going to run out of supplies or anything like that, says, oh, it's terrible that Governor Ivey is not instituting a lockdown. But the World Health Organization says that's not a good idea. And you haven't presented the case as to why it's a good idea. You're just assuming that it is a bad thing on its face. This is the problem with Whitmer's argument here. And also, Whitmer, I, I love how he words this little paragraph. He tries very, very, very hard 
to paint this narrative in a person's head, this sort of picture of Governor Ivey in a smoke-filled dark chamber uh, talking to very wealthy corporate business owners. Look, a lot of people that belong to that lobbying group, there's some pretty rich people there, I'm sure. But there's also a lot of people, whether they're represented there directly or indirectly, that are just small business owners. People that are running things like barbershops and, you know, small animal clinics and all kinds of other things, all kinds of other services that they just want to stay opened up so they can feed their family. It's not because they hate old people and want them to die or Governor Ivey's being bought and paid for by the big business in Alabama. No. Those people obviously want the state to stay open too. But there's thousands upon thousands of small business owners that they're afraid they're not going to make it through the year, especially if you take away the holiday shopping season from them. Look, especially with these small mom-and-pop places, and I'm not somebody that is in favor of government, you know, crafting legislation to favor small business or big business. I think that it should be impartial. And I believe in free market, so if a big business does a better job of offering a product or service than a small business, then that's the way the free market works, and, you know, that's just the breaks. But what's really unfair is a lot of these small businesses that rely on the holiday shopping season to stay afloat, not make just giant stacks of cash that they can swim around in in their basement, but just literally keeping food on the table. Those people are worried they can't do that now. And if you're stuck at home during a lockdown where people aren't allowed to go out, where do you think people are going to buy their Christmas presents? From Amazon and Etsy and all these other online corporations that are not located in the state of Alabama. You know, I'm, I'm not a protectionist. I don't want, like, all kinds of government programs to favor the little guy. I'm, I'm not that person. But I also don't want them torpedoing the little guy for no reason, and that's exactly what this legislation would do. Let the hardworking people of Alabama make those decisions for themselves. Let the business owners open their business if they want to open it and think it's worth the risk. And let the average Alabama citizen that just wants to, you know, get something nice for their kids or for their grandparents or whatever for Christmas, go to those small businesses and shop there. It's their choice. It shouldn't be your choice, Kyle Whitmire. That should be left up to them. And that ultimately goes to this final point and is a nice little segue into that. This is the, the last little part of his article. Now is the time, I should explain before I read this. What Cal Whitmire does here is he's very critical of Governor Ivey saying that she's not going to close down businesses and basically says you shouldn't make promises you, couldn't, you, you will not be able to keep. So this is the end of the article. Now is not the time to make promises you can't deliver. Optimism is important right now, and there are good reasons to be optimistic. Our scientists and pharmaceutical companies have discovered a highly effective vaccine in less than a year. The previous record for developing a vaccine was four years. That's a remarkable achievement, and it puts an end to the pandemic within sight. But we have a rough road between here and there, and the governor needs to prepare us for it. There's a difference between optimism and false hope. That's a distinction Ivy needs to learn. Now, 
on its surface, Whitmer's point is not without merit. Because I don't want a governor or any politician filling a person's head with false hope. Don't make a promise you can't keep. That's good advice. But the reason that Whitmer is wrong to point that out here is because this is a promise that Governor Ivey actually can keep. This is something that she can do because there is no evidence right now to back up the idea that we're going to see a massive spike or that we would run out of materials any time in the near future. This thing is more or less under control with therapeutics. And like you astutely pointed out, there's a virus on the way that could, you know, more or less mean we're done with this thing by April or May. The odds of there being some kind of massive spike way beyond, that's just not going to happen at this point. You know, maybe this would have been a good point to make a month into this pandemic where we weren't really all that knowledgeable about the virus. If you had said this in February, okay, maybe Kyle Whitmire's got a point. But now, we've seen it spread, we've seen what it does to other countries, we have a handle on it. And the important thing to note here is, the reason that Governor Ivey is doing this, it is to appease Alabama business, but not in the way that you think. Not because there's some big, powerful lobbying group that is saying to Governor Ivey that she's not going to win re-election, which I don't know if she's even going to seek re-election. I kind of doubt it, to be honest. But that's saying, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we're going to make sure that we sink you if you don't do this. That's not what's happening. She's not being strong-armed by the lobby. What is happening here is that Governor Ivey understands that markets abhor uncertainty. And we've reached the point now that there's no reason to believe that we would have any reason to shut down the economy again, ergo, it makes sense to convey that correct information, that promise that she can keep to the people of Alabama and the people of Alabama that are business owners saying, all right, well, at least that's one thing that we can pretty much rule out and now be a little bit more certain in how we're going to invest and spend our money. That's a good thing for the entire state. Eliminating uncertainty is incredibly important when it comes to how it's going to affect a market. And that's something that somebody like Kyle Whitmer just doesn't seem to get. Ultimately, when we look at all of this, though, I do think Ivy has done a pretty pathetic job. But for the opposite reasons that Whitmer thinks that. And I think that that is kind of a display of something that Governor Ivey may want to watch out for. Even though she has been very popular and had, I think at one point, the highest approval rating of any governor in the country. Now, why? I have no idea. But even though that was the case at one time, if you've got both Caleb Colquitt and Kyle Whitmire both angry at you for exactly the same speech, but for completely opposite reasons... That can't be good for you politically, I'm just saying. That cannot be a good thing for you politically. Now, maybe Governor Ivey has enough armor when it comes to politics. She, she has that name recognition armor that it seems to impossible to crack in the state of Alabama, that it really won't matter. Maybe that is the case. But I guarantee you that's a bad sign. That is a canary in a coal mine for a politician when you have both sides of the aisle equally angry at you for completely separate reasons. 
because that means at least the segment of either your base or the base of the other side is going to come out really strong against you, and if that happens at the same time, that can be pretty devastating for a, for a politician. But before we close out, this is one thing that I really, really wanted to emphasize here. Kyle Whitmire, in this article, essentially says that we need to stave this off. I'm paraphrasing here. But we need to make sure that we do this until we know that we have the virus under control. He says that other governors are closing it off to keep the virus under control. Here's my question. What does under control look like? Anything? What number of daily cases would sink below the threshold that Kyle Whitmire would declare the virus under control? And if we did that, would that mean that we can return to normal life, according to Kyle Whitmire? See, this is the thing that's hilarious about this. Whenever leftists make this argument, they never tell you what under control actually means. Because that way they can always say it's kind of like the uh, fortunate, fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater Revival. You know, when you ask how much should you give, the only answer is more, 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 more. That's their answer. It's the same thing that we see when it comes to education in Alabama. Well, the schools are failing because there's not enough money. We're not flinging enough money at the problem. Really? Well, how much is, is too much money? Well, just more. We, we need more. Okay, well, how can we tell whether it worked? It doesn't matter. We need more money. This is the same thing. Well, at what point would we reach a caseload that would you would deem worthy, Kyle Whitmire? Well, he's not going to tell you that because then we might actually reach it and then he's got to be mad about there not being a strict enough shutdown and he doesn't want to, to paint himself into a corner like that. And the politicians nationwide have been doing this. The people on the left have been doing this all over the country. They're not going to tell you what under control means. They're not going to tell you what that looks like, and they're not going to tell you at what point they're going to back off on those things. Because they're not a business owner, and they don't really care if there's a lot of uncertainty there. They don't think about it from that angle. And it is unfortunate, but they're willing to basically pay anything to the gods of safetyism. Look, I'm pretty libertarian on this stuff. It's a free country. If Kyle Whitmire, I think it's dumb, but if Kyle Whitmire wants to brick himself off into his basement, never come out again because he's scared of the big bad coronavirus germs, that's his prerogative. You know, the guy's a journalist. He can write from home. He can work from home. It's not affecting his pocketbook. And so if that's what he wants to do, you know, more power to him. I'm in the same business. I can pretty much work from home as well. I understand that. But that doesn't give you the right to rob everybody else of that choice. That's my problem with this. It's not enough for Kyle Whitmire to say, well, I really am scared of the virus right now. It looks like it's getting out of hand, so I'm just going to kind of lock myself in my basement. He wants a government official to come and tell you that you are being unsafe and we have to lock you up for your own protection. That should be that person's call. That should be that citizen's call. They should be the ones making those decisions. Maybe they make the wrong one. Maybe it winds up costing them. That's what freedom looks like. People make decisions all the time that wind up costing them. That's the price of freedom. And at the end of the day, people make a lot more decisions that benefit them 
that make their lives better. Maybe this is one of those decisions. Maybe it's not. I don't know, but I don't think I have the right to tell other people that they're not allowed to find out. That's the difference in somebody like me and Kyle Whitmire. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a break here, and then we'll be back in just a second on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Well, folks, it's another day, another news cycle, and another cookie review from insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com. Now, you could just go to an Insomnia Cookies store in Tuscaloosa or Mobile or Auburn or Birmingham if you just happen to be around one of those or one of their other many locations around the country. But if you're like me and don't happen to live in a city that has an Insomnia Cookies, and believe me, Montgomery needs one, but we don't right now, and the Lord has not seen fit to bless us with one. So if you're like me, you got to order from insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com. You do that. They're going to send you a fantastic box just like this that's going to arrive at your doorstep with all kinds of delicious cookies inside. God bless America. Delicious cookies delivered straight to your door. That's capitalism, baby. And I am loving every second of it. And today we're going to do a cookie that I've actually tried before. Usually when I do these cookie reviews, it's the first time. You may recall back in the Joe Biden town hall when I did my first cookie review, it was during the live town hall and there were some things going on. And also, because I was doing a live town hall during a live stream, I couldn't really heat them up. And the people at insomniacookies.com recommend that you heat the cookies up to give it that fresh baked cookie taste like they get in the store. And so they recommend you pop it in the microwave for a few seconds. They say 10. I usually say that it takes a little longer than that. I would say at least 20 or 30 seconds to get really get it to taste like a fresh baked cookie, but you know, your microwave may be different. Maybe try 10 first. But this one is the chocolate chip cookie, which kind of sounds plain. It kind of sounds boring, but when you're talking about the cookie from insomniacookies.com, it's anything but. Look at this cookie. Look at those chocolate chips. They're not even chocolate chips. They're chocolate chunks, which is why they call it the chocolate chunk cookie. These chips are, they're huge, they're bigger, they're bigger than the wall, they're the greatest cookies, everybody knows it, everybody's talking about it, these cookies, the chocolate chips are just huge, they're absolutely tremendous. So even your favorite president would love chocolate chips this size. Let's go ahead and just dive right into this cookie. Wow. That's how much chocolate is in one of these chocolate chunks. You saw that when I bit into it, it was like a, a chocolate volcano exploding all over, and I got, I still have a little bit of chocolate on my lips there. But that's how much chocolate is in one of these. I should have known that going in, especially with warming it up and making the chocolate all melty. Ooh, that is a good cookie. That is a fantastic chocolate chip cookie. The chocolate, it tastes really good. Does it taste like one of those cheap, store-bought, like you, you just went to Walmart and bought a bag of chocolate chips. No, that, that's a chocolate chunk. And the chocolate quality is really good. The cookie quality is really good. So my dad actually came by the other day, and I parted with one of my chocolate chunk cookies just to give him a chance to try it. And, and granted, it was hard for me. I had some separation anxiety. But uh, I, I love him, and the man gave me life. So I let him have one of my Insomnia Cookies chocolate chunk cookies. And he thought it was fantastic. I think these are fantastic. You warm them up, you get that melty chocolate quality in them. They're so, so good. Oh, I've got to have another bite of this. Look, look at all the chocolate in this chocolate chip cookie. There's almost more chocolate than cookie. And yet it still maintains its structure, and it, it, you can still taste the cookie, too. Oh, man, that's a good cookie. 
Now, personally, there's some novelty cookies from Insomnia Cookies that I do like better. I like the mint chocolate chip. I like the peanut butter cup. But, man, just even the chocolate chunk cookie, the, the, the sort of standard cookie, so good. So, if you want a chocolate chunk cookie with chocolate chunks that are absolutely huge, huge, you go to insomniacookies.com and they will deliver them right to your door. That's insomniacookies.com. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com. Now oh, you've messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics and our Daily Dose of Stupid today. We have a special treat for you because, frankly, there was just a lot of stupid. And we, I know we've been gone for a couple days. But there's been a lot of stupid, and a lot of it is going to center around the Cuomo brothers. But before we get to that, i got to share this with you. There were just a couple of stupid memes that I, I wanted to share because they do illustrate some of the stupidity going around Thanksgiving. Since it is, of course, Thanksgiving, we are doing a Thanksgiving-themed daily dose of stupid. And so this was one of the funnier ones that I saw. You can see this graphic right here. And this is guidelines from the CDC, you can see here. And my favorite thing about this, avoid singing and shouting. Okay, well, that one, you know, you could see that. That is a spreading of, of droplets, which they believe is the way that the coronavirus spreads. So it may be a little annoying, but avoiding singing and shouting, that one actually does kind of make sense. But I love the next two. Keep music levels down and limit alcohol. Uh... Keep music levels down and limit alcohol intake. Now, I'm not a fan of alcohol, to be perfectly honest. I've never had alcohol in my life. I, if, if people ask me what my stance is on it, I don't think that it's necessarily sinful. I, I do think that it's dumb. I, I, th I think that. I think it's dumb to take alcohol. But spreading the virus? You know, it's interesting because this virus is incredibly woke. Because it will affect people that are protesting their business being closed down and their family going into poverty. The virus will not affect somebody that's protesting a woke cause like Black Lives Matter. But we've also found out that this virus is incredibly prudish, which is odd. Because you will not be protected in the uh, coronavirus if you're engaged in intercourse with someone unless you're wearing a mask. If you're wearing a mask, then you're perfectly okay. We learned that. What kind of sense that makes, I have no idea. But now we're learning that when it comes to this particular virus, that it will also, uh, it doesn't like alcohol. Well, I mean, wouldn't alcohol hurt the virus? I mean, isn't that what's in the hand sanitizer that we're using? I'm not saying that drinking alcohol makes you immune or something. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. What I am saying, though, is... If there's anything that you would think that you could ingest that would help prevent the coronavirus, I mean, maybe besides vitamin D and vitamin, uh, uh, vitamin C, you would think that would be alcohol. And I'm not even a fan of ingesting alcohol myself. I don't do it. But wouldn't that stand to reason? How is it? They're telling us. This is the thing that just astounds me about this. 
They are telling us that we are the idiots, we're the science deniers, and we need to just shut up and listen to everything that the CDC tells us. And they're the people that are saying that loud music and alcohol intake, that's what's going to result in the spreading of the virus, that the precautions we should take to protect ourselves from this virus is keep the music levels down and don't drink any booze. Okay, CDC. Although, I will say, it is a proven scientific fact that hip-hop and corona beer do indeed spread the coronavirus. That is, that's just science, and if you disagree with me, then you're a science denier and a terrible person and a Nazi that probably kicks puppies. That's what I've learned from the left, is that that's how to win all of the arguments, is to just yell that they're a science denier, even if the thing that you're talking about is not scientific in the least. But it is a proven fact that hip-hop and coronavirus, or corona beer, they do indeed spread the coronavirus. Maybe that's why minorities have had such a rough time with it, is because it's spread through hip-hop and corona beer, which means that you should avoid these things at all costs. In fact, no one should ever play hip-hop ever again anywhere in the country. <laughs> Obviously, I'm being facetious here, but there was another one that I saw and I thought was really good and it perfectly illustrated the problem with a lot of the politicians and the way that they're reacting to this Thanksgiving. I'm sure that you've all heard about the restrictions and that you can't have more than, what is it, in New York, 10 people? You can't have more than 10 people over to your house. So this was <laughs> one that put out and if you're a, <laughs> if you're a, a fan of classic Christmas movies, you'll recognize it. There will be no large gatherings, no Thanksgiving, no Christmas, and no New Year's by the order of Burgermeister Meisterburger. It just doesn't get any better than that. That is such a perfect illustration of everything that is wrong with these politicians that have been putting forth these edicts. Because you may recall that Burgermeister Meisterburger, he just hated toys. And because he hated toys, he didn't want anybody else to have toys. And he's just an old, miserable man that wanted to spread his misery to everybody, and he had the power to do it. Doesn't that pretty closely and accurately give away, you know, that, that's a pretty apt description of what's going on with governors like Cuomo and Newsom and Whitmer. It seems like Democrats just hate joy and want to make sure that nobody else is enjoying themselves. And they do this despite there not really being any hard scientific evidence that it would be a problem, but even if there were, and I'm not saying that there's no evidence that, you know, being in a large group of people eating would cause the spread, because, you know, that certainly could. But what I'm saying here is, there's no reason to believe that these are super spreaders or that each individual person is acting so recklessly that it could cause this problem or that they are incapable of making this determination for themselves. But the other thing that's really funny about this analogy, because obviously the one big difference is the Democrats believe they're really doing this for your benefit. Burgermeister was just a mean dude that didn't like that. But the funniest scene in that movie, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, that kind of illustrates this. I don't know if you remember it. I would show it, but I'm afraid of getting copyright busted for this, even though I'd be giving commentary on it. You remember when the Burgermeister finds a yo-yo and he starts playing with the yo-yo and he's having a good time with it and then all of a sudden, the guy that's with him, his assistant or whatever, he's like, 
you're breaking your own rule against toys. And much like that, we have people like Gavin Newsom who just recently got caught with all people with the heads of the medical advisors on his staff eating indoors in a crowded room and they were so loud it actually has the option to you can open up the windows and it can be outside but they were so loud that they actually had to close those <laughs> and they were inside this tiny crowded room with a whole bunch of people including his own medical advisors in the midst of all this and they were being so loud which by the way would spread the droplets more that they had to close these windows down. And this is Gavin Newsom, the person that's telling you, you can't have your grandma over for Thanksgiving because it's too dangerous. And Andrew Cuomo, who actually made this into a law, an unenforceable law, but a law nonetheless, that you can only have certain amounts of people and you shouldn't be having multi-generational dinners, that you shouldn't be having dinner with grandma, who is also having his own mother, who is 89 years old, come to a big family gathering with presumably about 10 people or more, based on the way he described it in a radio interview. And so they're just such a bunch of hypocrites. They're just like the Burgermeister. He's playing with a yo-yo. It's okay for him to do it until he realizes, wait a second, I'm breaking my own rule here. It's the same kind of thing. Look, they're doing this because they think you're too stupid to make your own decisions. But they're not. They're one of the special people. They're one of the people that won an election. Ooh, that must mean that they're really, really smart and really, really important. And because of that, the rules shouldn't apply to them. They're just giving rules from on high to apply to you. It doesn't apply to the people in the ivory tower, see, because they're smart enough to be able to make those decisions on their own. It kind of reminds me of that episode of King of the Hill where they enact a ban on trans fat and they... Hank and the guys wind up going underground to sell people fried foods and that kind of thing. And uh, the guy who instituted it, that made the rule, who doesn't even live in the town that they're talking about, uh, he's actually eating trans fats and he's like, well, you know, I, I have enough discretion to only enjoy them when I need to. All of you people, all of you peons out there in flyover country, you don't need the, you need those regulations to save you from yourselves. But, you know, I'm smart enough and I have the ability to indulge occasionally, but not overindulge. But you guys, you can't have them ever because you just can't control yourselves. That is how these people think. They think of the average American as an imbecile that must be nannied. They can't make their own decisions. That's how they think of themselves. They really have become like the little cartoon villains, like the Burgermeister. So speaking of Andrew Cuomo... I just couldn't let this quote go. This one was too funny. I lost it. I absolutely lost it when I saw this. This is not from a news outlet. This is directly from a quote from him from the governor's office. And this is him talking about the coronavirus. We'll just look at this little highlighted part. <coughs> the president talks about CVS and Walgreens and national chains. Sure, but they are mainly located in rich communities and not poor communities. Let that sink in. My friends, we can't compound the racial injustice that COVID already created. Let me be clear. Black and brown communities that were first on the list of who died cannot be last on the list of who receives the vaccine, period. So according to Andrew Cuomo, the fact that President Trump 
is going to be distributing the vaccine, at least according to his plan, through CVS, Walgreens, and other national pharmaceutical chains is racist because black communities, especially poor black communities, they don't have those. Those are, to use his own words, primarily in rich communities. This is, you don't even have to do a fact check. This is automatically stupid to any person that doesn't live like Andrew Cuomo apart from everybody else. There are freaking CVSs and Walgreens everywhere. They're the two largest pharmaceutical chains in America. To illustrate my point, remember, I live in Montgomery. It is a city that is 70% black. I am the minority in this city. And by the way, it's one of the poorest capitals of any capital in the United States. I think it's like 30-ish. Uh, it's in the 30s when it comes to the poorest cities in America. Yeah, Montgomery still has, uh, it's ranked eight, 48th in economic well-being of state capitals by Wallet Hub. So that means there's only two state capitals under us when it comes to economic well-being. We're one of the poorest cities in the country and 70% black. You know what? Still have six Walgreens and 11 CVSs. By the way, that is excluding Prattville, Wetumpka, Millbrook. That's just Montgomery proper. Six Walgreens, 11 CVSs. But there are no n none of those in poor black communities. What about Birmingham? Also 70% black. And by the way, even poorer than Montgomery, the World Population Review ranked it the ninth poorest city in America. You know how many Walgreens they got? 16. And how many CVSs? 17. And that's in the Birmingham metro. So that does include some of the outlying areas, but you know, it's hard to distinguish between those in Birmingham. So obviously in black, poor communities, there's still Walgreens and CVSs. What about Selma? That is the poorest city in the state of Alabama per capita. Yet, Selma still has a Walgreens and a CVS. And it's a little bitty town. So the idea that there are not CVSs and not Walgreens in these poor communities are just dumb. This guy lives so high in his ivory tower. He doesn't even realize how stupid what he is saying is. And what's really horrible about this is he thinks that it is... It, it reminds me of this guy in a video game I'm playing right now, Fire Emblem Three Houses, and it's a, in a medieval setting, and so there's like lords and nobles, and then there's commoners. There's one guy that's a noble, and this kind of plays into what we were talking about earlier with, with Andrew Cuomo. And he believes that it's his duty as a noble to protect and assist the commoners. It's very demeaning. It's very, uh, it, it's very much in the way of somebody that you would see as someone that just thinks that they're better than everyone else. He, he thinks that he's one of the good guys, because he is one of the nobles that looks as, as his duty as a noble, as an enlightened person, to help out the commoners and the poor folk because they're just beneath him and they can't really do anything on their own. And so it's, it's very degrading the way he treats them. But he thinks of himself as being the hero that is nobly going to those poor people that just aren't as smart and not as capable as him. And he's going to help them out. That's who Andrew Cuomo is. He reminds me so much of this guy. 
And it's because he really does look at other people. See, he sees himself as being the the noble that is going and helping the commoners, the poor folks, the black people that can't, you know, they can't even get to a pharmacy to get a vaccine on their own. That's how dumb and incompetent they are. And because they can't go to a pharmacy that may not be in a, a rich neighborhood, and again, I have no idea why he thinks that CVSs and Walgreens are exclusive to rich neighborhoods, that he thinks because they can't even go to a pharmacy to get that vaccine, that he, as the, the noble, is going to swoop down and save them because they're too stupid to do anything for themselves. That's how Andrew Cuomo views poor black people. It's a really horrible way to look at the world. I, I don't see how these people aren't considered racist themselves. I mean, he never gets labeled a racist that I'm aware of, and yet that's an incredibly demeaning thing to assume about somebody. Some of the worst racists you will ever run against are people that have a D behind their name. And it's unfortunate, but it is the truth. And remember, that kind of tracks, because that's what the Democrat Party was for the entirety of its lifespan up until really about 40, 50 years ago. But anyway, uh, what's worse about all this is that what he's talking about here, because he's planning on, because of this, this was his announcement in suing the Trump administration, is that this is going to create another hurdle in his state to getting the vaccine, because all it's going to do is it's going to cause a legal hiccup and it's going to make it harder and take longer for the vaccine to be distributed in Andrew Cuomo's state. And so it's really sad here is because he has a bad case of Trump derangement syndrome and just assumes that if he's rolling out the vaccine through CVS and Walgreens, that must secretly be Trump's way trying to stick it to black people. That must be what Trump's really doing here. Again, I have no idea why this fantasy exists inside Andrew Cuomo's head, but apparently that is what he thinks about President Trump, that he's such an evil, heartless racist that he is specifically behind the scenes trying to manipulate the distribution to make sure that poor black people aren't getting it. And because of this, he's going to sue, which will probably cause people to not be able to get it as quickly, primarily in the poor and black communities in the state of New York, because it's going to take longer for them to be distributed there. Trump derangement syndrome. It's really terrible when it's just a talking head on TV saying something that makes absolutely no sense or throwing out conspiracy theories that have no basis in truth. It's a thousand times worse when it actually winds up hurting somebody, that because somebody assumes that Trump is some kind of evil racist monster, that he does something that actually results in the very people he's claiming to be championing and protecting, it results in them not getting the things that they need, in this case, the distribution of the vaccine. It really is terrible that this is a case that could cost lives, and I mean, I'm honestly wondering if at this point Cuomo's just trying to up his body count, just doing everything he can to kill as many people from the coronavirus as humanly possible. It's very rare that I engage in the kind of hyperbolic language that people do. It's like, well, this politician has blood on their hands. I don't do that nine times out of ten. And if I do it, I'm very cautious about it. Cuomo's one of the few people that actually does. You know, as, as much as I may have disliked other politicians, I can't think of a scenario where they, they, you know, have blood on their hands, a policy they did directly led to somebody's death. Andrew Cuomo really did. 
He's the one that came up with the nursing home policy that you cannot keep a person out, even if they know for a fact they're COVID positive, and then tried to hide it by counting the New York death records differently that if they were not within the four walls of a nursing home, even if they got the virus in the nursing home, they were sick for two weeks in the nursing home with the virus, you take them out of the nursing home and they die in a hospital five minutes before they're, they're passing, that doesn't get counted as a nursing home death, and then went out and touted it at how low their nursing home numbers were. That's the kind of evil person that Andrew Cuomo is. And it, he's the moral compass that we're all supposed to listen to about how to handle the virus. I'm just not going to take it. I'm not. And perhaps the only person as dumb as Andrew Cuomo and as two-faced and manipulative and evil as Andrew Cuomo is his brother, Chris Cuomo. This is a unrelated but still important part of this. So what happens is Dr. Scott Atlas a few days ago, he's one of the president's advisors on the coronavirus, was talking about the impact of the virus and the impact also the health impact of the shutdowns and some of the things that they cause uh, an increase in things like suicide rate, an increase in things like depression, especially amongst uh, adolescents and that kind of thing. And, and then he starts talking about the elderly and how there is a level of isolation that is causing psychological damage to them. And this is something that's been reported both by conservative and mainstream news sources. But apparently there was just way too much for Chris Cuomo to handle, and he just absolutely melts down and goes off on the guy. Take a watch. Dr. Atlas, okay, a guy with no pandemic experience. He literally would know more if he stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. He's saying, hey, you in Michigan, these uh, measures to help try to control the spread, fight back. Are you kidding me? Shame on you. What kind of doctor would tell people to rise up and resist the only kind of prophylaxis that can help them? What the is the matter with this person? Rise up. You rise up and do your job or get the out. How could you give this kind of advice? Of course, Fauci was being measured. He says, I don't agree with his position. This isn't Fauci's fight. The science is obvious. This is about Trump and the Trumpers. He's going to have his main health guy stand up and say, fight back against the regulations to keep you safe. Listen to him. I'm not making it up. And this kind of isolation is one of the unspoken tragedies of the elderly who are now being told, don't see your family at Thanksgiving. For many people, this is their final Thanksgiving, believe it or not. What are we doing here? What the hell are you doing here? Yeah, it could be their last Thanksgiving. If you expose them to people who aren't wearing masks, who aren't socially distancing and haven't been doing so and haven't gotten tested because they somehow think they don't want to get in on the con of COVID. So that, of course, is CNN's Chris Cuomo, the brother of Governor Andrew Cuomo, saying all of this. First of all, it's an absurd argument from authority saying, well, this guy has absolutely no experience in pandemics. Yet, do you know what Dr. Atlas actually specializes in? Because he is a doctor, he's a neurologist. So, he, you know, his, his area of expertise is in neuroscience. But what he's actually known for and what made him famous, because he, he does work and is a, a staffer at Stanford, 
uh, the thing that actually made him famous is he studies how medical policies, government medical policies, affect the population. So this is his area of expertise, the unintended consequences of government making medical policy. That is his lane. And so, but even if that weren't, weren't true, even if Dr. Atlas was just a doctor, he acts as though having a medical degree is absolutely no qualification for speaking about a pandemic. Well, it is some qualification. It does play some role in this. I mean, let's say that there is a, a mechanic that is a, a specialized Dodge mechanic. Like he works at a Dodge dealership and he only works on Dodges. Okay, would you rather have him or some random dude on the street work on your Toyota? I mean, maybe the Dodge guy doesn't know everything about the Toyota, but I do trust him to know more than the random dude that's never worked on a car before in his life. I mean, that is some qualification. But the second part of that is, whenever someone makes an argument of authority, that's a pretty good indication they don't have much of an argument. And in his case, it's a negative argument, not a positive argument. What I mean by that is he's saying this person is not qualified. Not that he is qualified, that he's not qualified, and he's making that argument of authority. That is a weak sauce argument. Because you'll notice at no point does he ever actually try to counter anything Atlas says or, or even says why he disagrees with it. He just says, well, the science is settled. I'm going to leave it there. So he's not going to back up his claim with evidence. He's not going to give a reason why the science is settled or what exactly he disagreed with with Dr. Atlas there. He just says, ah, well, you know, he's, he's not an expert and uh, I'm very mad about this. And that's basically all Chris Cuomo has to counter Dr. Atlas. Now, I'm not one of these guys that thinks just because somebody has a medical degree that he's God and I have to listen to everything he says and he's infallible. That was the stance of pretty much everybody on the left until the second that they saw somebody that didn't agree with them. And then all of a sudden, oh, that you can't trust that person. Listen to the experts. Well, except for this one expert that disagrees with me. Don't listen to him. That, he's a crazy person. He doesn't have any qualifications. And these are the same people that were pushing Dr. Fauci. And I don't hate Dr. Fauci. I don't think he's a horrible person. I think that he's wrong on a lot of things. But when it came to Dr. Fauci... I thought that he was an expert in pandemics, but they were asking him for advice on how to handle the economy and how to do all these other things. And so because he has a degree in medicine that he ought to be the, the end-all be-all and the Constitution should be thrown away and when we're in a pandemic, Dr. Fauci should just be the, the all-powerful person at the top making all the decisions. And that's not anything close to resembling what should have happened here. But the second that they find an expert that disagrees with what they think, oh, well, then it's okay to not believe the experts. Listen to the, what they really meant was, listen to the experts that confirm what I already believe and disregard all the other experts. That's what they were really trying to say when they said, listen to the experts. They were saying, listen to my excerpts, uh, experts. And that's really the problem that Chris Cuomo has. He doesn't actually have anything to counter the argument. He just makes a really, really shallow argument of authority, and that's all he's got. The problem with Dr. Fauci from the onset, though, is that Dr. Fauci was always looking at one side of the ledger. And again, I don't think that Fauci is some kind of deep state stooge that, you know, despises Trump. I think that recently he's shown that he has quite a bit more animosity from Trump than we originally thought that he did, and that's not something to be overlooked. But my point in all of this 
is that Dr. Fauci was always looking at one side of the ledger, which is, how do we keep cases down? Not a terrible way to approach the problem on the onset, but Dr. Fauci was never considering some of the other, and I'm not even talking about economic woes or, or how it affected the country or national security or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not asking Dr. Fauci to do that. That's not his job. I'm saying he wasn't even looking at the health ramifications on the other side. Because the health ramifications on the other side increases in things like depression, undiagnosed medical conditions, uh, people like me that were 28 and would have no reason to believe that they had cancer and only happened to have that discovered because I went into the hospital, I wouldn't have been able to do that if it had happened in the pandemic because they would have been closed. Or I might have been hesitant to go in because, I mean, the medical, the, the emergency room would have technically been open. But all of those other things, we're not counting the cost of the shutdown. That's the problem. It's like the second that this happened, Dr. Fauci got tunnel vision and the only health to America, the only threat to America's health is the coronavirus. Every other threat to health, obesity, uh, inactivity, depression, isolation, those all just went out the door the second the coronavirus went, they all were eliminated immediately. That's been the problem with Dr. Fauci is he's not considering the other side of this. Dr. Atlas is, he's taking a more comprehensive view of what the virus is doing and what the shutdowns are doing and the effect of the shutdown. Would locking down everybody and cementing them inside their house and telling them they wouldn't leave stop the spread of the virus? Yeah, it absolutely would. If you had policemen standing out someone's door and not letting them leave, that would cut down on the spread of the virus. But Fauci never considered the other side of that. And I know I straw manned a little bit there. I, I understand that. Understand that that's not what Dr. Fauci was proposing. I'm saying that continuing these lockdowns does have a side effect on America's health, uh, health, and Dr. Fauci was never really considering that. Look, ultimately what this comes down to is something that I talked about earlier when we were discussing Kyle Whitmire's piece earlier in the show. I want other people to make that decision, not me. Same thing goes here with the Thanksgiving when it comes to their mandates or when it comes to what a governor could say, I don't want to make that decision. I want them to make that decision. What Dr. Atlas was talking about there where he said, there might be some people that this is their last go-round, that this is their last Thanksgiving. Are you really going to sit there and tell somebody that is elderly, let's say that they've got terminal cancer, their doctor's only given them six months to live anyway, so virus or no, this is the last Thanksgiving for them. And we're telling them that they shouldn't be allowed to go have Thanksgiving dinner with their grandkids? No. That is not a thing that you can convince me it's okay for the government to tell them they're not allowed to do. You know, maybe that person does get coronavirus and they die four months earlier than they were expected to. That's a horrible tragedy. But maybe in their mind, it was worth seeing their grandkids on Thanksgiving to take that risk. I don't want to make that decision. I don't want to make it for everybody else. I don't want to tell them they can or that they can't, that they should or that they shouldn't. I want them to make that decision. That's what liberty looks like. I may disagree with their decision. I might think their decision is dumb. But it's their decision to make. It's their life. 
And the idea that these bureaucrats sitting up in Washington or in Cuomo's case, Albany or wherever it is, Sacramento, California, that they can sit in their ivory towers up on high and they can dictate down to everybody else how they need to spend their holidays and the decisions that are too dangerous for them to make. That's what gets under my skin about this whole thing. The arrogance that you can make those decisions for thousands or millions of people, that you know better than them what's best for their life, look, maybe it would be better for them to socially distance and isolate themselves, and maybe they'll live another 10 years, and if they got the coronavirus at uh, Thanksgiving, that they would die. Okay, I understand that, and if that happens, that's a tragedy. But it should be up to them if they're willing to decide to take that risk or not. I don't have the right to take that freedom from them, and neither does Andrew Cuomo. Neither does Chris Cuomo. Neither does Anthony Fauci. Nobody should be allowed to make that decision except the person that is putting themselves at risk, period, end of discussion. You're talking about somebody that may have... You know, to be honest, it may be my granddad's last Thanksgiving. He's in his 90s. It may be the last time I see him for Christmas. I don't know. But... The idea that you're going to tell somebody that fought for their country, who literally fought the Nazis, that they're not allowed to exercise the freedom that they put their lives on the line for already, risking their lives in Europe? You're going to tell me that that person doesn't have the right to decide for themselves whether or not they get to see their grandkids on the holidays. No, I don't accept that. And I question the morality of anybody that does. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's Report today comes from the book of Psalms. We're going to do a Psalm of Thanksgiving. I mean, yeah, that was kind of obvious that we were going to do something along those lines with this giant banner behind me. But yeah, we, we're going to do a Psalm of Thanksgiving. That just seemed obvious to me. So we're going to go ahead and delve into Psalm number 100. So we'll go ahead and look at that here. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with jubilation. Come before him with rejoicing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courtyards with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness is to all generations. This psalm is just a, a great outpouring of gratitude for the things that God has done. And it actually, despite the fact that it's a song, it's very, very descriptive in the, it's got a very deep theological meaning 
to it because it starts out just kind of as a generic call to praise and thanksgiving. Shout to, joyfully to the Lord all the earth and then serve God with jubilation. Come with him with rejoicing. But you see, because it's going to get into thanksgiving and it's actually called a psalm of thanksgiving, yet for the first two verses, you don't see the word thanks or thanksgiving or gratitude. But that shows where gratitude's supposed to come from, doesn't it? You know, sometimes when you're a kid, you learn to say thank you even though you're not really thankful. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, they're a kid. They haven't learned that kind of stuff yet. They don't have the wisdom, maturity, and perspective to truly be grateful for some of the things that they have. I mean, if air's always been available to you, it doesn't occur to you to be thankful for it. And so, especially if you're a kid that lives in a, a really rich country and has just kind of had everything that they needed... They don't really think about being thankful for things like their clothes or their house or their parents. You know, you're not thankful for having both your mom and your dad until you meet somebody that doesn't have that. And it suddenly dawns on you that that's something that's pretty amazing and, and pretty rare and that's something that not everybody has the opportunity to have. And then gaining that perspective allows you to have that Thanksgiving. That's what these first two verses are about. Come before the Lord with jubilation and rejoicing. You see, that's a true spirit of thanksgiving. That is acknowledging and noticing that God didn't have to do the things that he did for you. That you have the things that God has blessed you with, and that is something that is worthy of rejoicing. It's not something that was owed to you. It's not something that you have by default. It's something that God conveyed to you. Therefore, the natural reaction to that should be shouts of jubilation and rejoicing. And then the third verse gets into knowing that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. And so this dives deeper into the reason for our thanksgiving. Because ultimately it goes back to the Lord being God. It's that simple. The fact that God is all-powerful and the creator of the universe, and he is an all-powerful, all-knowing being that cared enough to make you. I mean, isn't that by itself, even if you ignore everything else, if you had no other blessings other than that, isn't that a reason for celebration? That God cared enough about you to give you the gift of life? I mean, that's big enough by itself. And then he goes into all of the things that God is, that he has made us and not ourselves. Aren't you thankful that you didn't make yourself? I know I certainly am. I would have screwed me up horribly bad. Not that I'm perfect now, even though I was made perfect. I'm not now. Can you imagine if I made myself? I would have been so horrible at that. And then it goes into sort of the symbolic language of being the sheep and the people of his pasture. You know... The sheep, probably, a lot of them lack an appreciation for the shepherd. It's probably true. That if all they've ever known is life with a the shepherd, they probably don't really have any gratitude for him. He's kind of always been there. He kind of just bats them around when he needs them to go somewhere. But all of a sudden, when there's a wolf and the, the shepherd, the shepherd, I don't know why I can't talk today, and the shepherd chases them off, well, maybe then, if the sheep were self-aware and had human thoughts, 
had the ability to reason, you'd be pretty grateful for the shepherd in that moment, wouldn't he? When he realizes that the reason that he always has green grass to eat is because the shepherd is steering him towards that grass and steering him towards the water he needs to sustain him, that he knows where all the good grazing spots are, and he's the one that's rotating that out season by season to make sure he has the best so that the sheep can grow. The sheep's probably not aware that that's what the shepherd is doing when he's herding him around. But that's exactly what's happening. And so if the sheep had some self-awareness, he would realize there's a lot to be grateful to the shepherd for. And maybe that's how most people go through life, is that there's a whole lot of people that don't realize how much God does for them. Do they just go through life totally unaware that there is a shepherd that cares for them, that is looking after them and protecting them and watching over them and providing for them, all of those things. And they're just oblivious to it. And you know what, gang? Some of us that are Christians and read our Bibles and all that, Sometimes we're oblivious to it too. Sometimes we forget about it. Sometimes it's just not in the forefront of our mind and because of that it gets put on the back burner. Sometimes that is life for us. But this sense of rejoicing and thanksgiving is the counter to that. That's why it's so important. Is it important to be grateful to people because it's a nice sentiment? Yeah, it is. It's always good to be thanked. When somebody thanks you for something that you did and you earned it, that is a good feeling. But is the feeling what's important? Or is it important that somebody acknowledge that they did something for somebody else? Because that instills humility and spirituality and a sense of needing someone else. It instills a sense of community. There's all these other benefits. Really being thankful, it's not for God's sake. I mean, he's God. He's all-powerful. He doesn't need anything. Being thankful is for us. It helps us to acknowledge who God really is and who we are. And ultimately, that's the reason that this is so important. And then he finishes off in verses 4 and 5 where it talks about entering his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. From beginning to end, whenever we are in God's presence, that is cause for celebration and thanksgiving. That is what that verse is saying that the the whole visit from the time that we are in God's presence throughout eternity, that is cause for giving thanks to God for the things that he has given to us. And then he kind of ends here with more of the reasons why we should be thankful. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness is to all generations. And so this communicates a, a couple of truths. First of all, God is morally good. We're thankful not only that God exists and He is who He is, but also that He is a good God that cares about us and loves us. The second is that His mercy is everlasting. That may be the thing we need to be most thankful for, me especially, that He has a, a mercy that does not end. Because if His mercy ever gave out, I would be up a creek without a paddle and so would the rest of us. And then finally, His faithfulness is to all generations. The blessings don't just stop with us. They continue for future generations of humans, and for the past ones as well. His blessings and His faithfulness don't have an expiration date. God is eternal, and because of that, His promises are eternal as well. Those are all things to celebrate and all things that we can look and say thank, uh, say thank you to our Father for. You know, maybe this Thanksgiving, when we're all with our family and thinking about all the things that we're thankful for, 
it's great to be thankful for the food. It's great to be thankful that we made it through this, I, I mean, just mess and hurricane of a year, or at least almost have. But maybe the thing we need to be thankful for the most is to sit around and talk about how good God has been. That we have salvation and security in the eternal sense. Maybe that's something that needs to be noticed too. Yeah, that's something that is true every year and yet is something that is everlasting. But isn't that just more reason to be thankful for it? Sometimes because something is ever-present, we kind of forget that it's there and forget to be thankful for it. But ultimately, that's the thing we need to be thankful for the most because that's the thing that doesn't go away. Be thankful for all your blessings, but for the eternal ones, maybe just take a little effort this year to remember those in your Thanksgiving festivities as well. Hope you enjoy the holiday with your family. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.